Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows that because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids. We're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or $300,000 in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. And now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snaphook Podcast. Tim Costello, Scott Barzilla coming in hot as we're recording this late on a Tuesday night, getting ready uh, for a nice hump day treat for our listeners here. You know, speaking of hot, I don't know how the weather is up there in your neck of the woods, but, you know, I think we've had like, I want to say, you know, 45 days since we've had significant rain down here in, in Houston and you know, temperatures over a hundred every day. It's just, it's, uh, but you know, global warming doesn't exist obviously. Right. No, absolutely not. Right. But uh, it's, it's toasty up here, Scott. I don't know how many days it's been without rain. It feels like a lot. Um, it's like 108 degrees every evening and I'm not exaggerating. It's like legitimately 108. Um, thank God I have a pool. Number one. Uh, thank God I work from home most days, so I don't even have to like go outside and deal with it. Um, but yeah, it's it's awful. And as a first time homeowner um, who doesn't have a great lawn to begin with, you know, I kind of circled that as as a priority when I bought the home of like I'm really going to turn this lawn around. And um, you know, between my neighbor's giant tree that creates a lot of shade and and heat like this, it's I'm fighting an uphill battle here, Scott. We were having a team meeting today, and so we do this once a week, and for about five minutes, the wind picked up, and we actually had what looked like kind of like a thunderstorm for five minutes, and that meeting was interrupted, and everybody was running to the window, and going, oh my God, what's going on? It's like, it's, it's raining. Yeah, I know what you mean. We, we, um, we've had a sprinkler system, you know, that's been off and on, you know, that, that broke a couple of times during our freezes and, and is now finally working again. And so that's probably the only thing keeping our lawn going these days. So you know, I try and respect nature and, and conservation and, and when we're 108 degrees, I, I try not to overwater, but I don't have a sprinkler system, Scott. And I have made a couple mistakes 
um, that I think every first-time homeowner makes. Um, I have overflowed the pool twice so far when I'm adding water. Um, I thought it'd be a good idea to turn the sprinkler on before Haley and I went to the hospital to give birth and then forgot that I did that and then left the sprinkler on for three straight days while we were in the hospital. Uh, only to my father-in-law to come grab some stuff for us and be like, hey, did you mean to have the sprinkler on? Or you guys have like a timer or something? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, the kicker being I came home and grabbed some items. Uh, but became because I came in through the back door where we have an alley, I did not notice the sprinkler was on. Um, so that was a fun one. And then last night I let it run for three hours. Um, so yeah, so, you know, even though I'd like to consider myself a conservationist, I'm also extremely absent-minded and, uh, have, have, uh, let it run a couple times. Uh, so you've got one of those King of the Hill type alleys, right? And in the, uh, in that yeah. neck of the woods. And to be honest with you, I always wanted one. Like after watching King of the Hill growing up and like living in Houston, that wasn't really a thing, at least in the Clear Lake area. Um, but up here they are a thing. And I, I would always see alleys, and I was like, man, I, I really want to have a house with an alley. Uh, I think it makes the front of the house look a lot nicer when you don't have the garage there. Um, but, yeah, I've got the old King of the Hill style. Um, very, really, like, very much. Like, if people didn't have fences in their backyard, it would look exactly like what you're looking at uh, in Arlen, Texas. Yeah, my, uh, my sister, she used to live in Rockwall. And they had a house with one of those alleys. So it actually doesn't surprise me you know, that y'all got that going up here. And I don't know if you heard, but uh, Dale Gribble passed away. I did hear that. Very sad because they just restarted uh, the show on Hulu again. And they like he had recorded the first four episodes. So they're trying to decide, uh, do they recast the part or do they, um, you know, have him die in the show? So I'll be intrigued to see um, how they handle that one. Well, you know, and not only does Dale Gribble die, but also Rusty Shackelford. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of bugs are going to be a lot safer in the Arlen community now that uh, one of the legends of the extermination game is no longer out there taking care of business. Maybe they can call a Tom DeLay. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe they can. Maybe they can call uh, Chuck Mangione to come. Uh, come the way they, the Meg way they used, yeah the way they used Chuck Mangione in that show was was absolutely fantastic. I mean, I that show still holds up to me. Like, it, there's a lot of shows from that time period that you watch them now, and it's just like it's just not. What was I thinking? This really wasn't that good. Like, I think like you look at like everybody loves Raymond. Like, was that really that good, or was I just told it was good? But then you watch King of the Hill, and you're just like, damn, that was funny. See, years ago, we stopped. I, I don't even know if we watch, you know, old-fashioned network TV anymore. Like, we started getting into, like, the... Like, I, US, I really don't. Like, the USA shows, USA Network, and, like, we're right now on Hulu, we're re-watching Burn Notice. I don't know if you ever watched that show. I, I tried. I couldn't get into that one. I did like... I really liked White Collar. Uh, really liked Suits. I think Suits was... Uh, that's where I got the idea for the name for my daughter. Um, so it wasn't me. It was not you. Scott. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wanted something. I wanted something golf themed, and they they have a character who goes by her last name. Her name was Dana Scott, and she goes by Scotty. And I was like, ooh, I like the sound of that. You know, golf themed Scotty Cameron. 
it worked out. Okay, that, that uh, I can I can definitely support that, and of course I would have supported being named after me as well. Of course, obviously, who um, wouldn't? Like to be fair, like no offense, but who wouldn't be a support a child being named after them? It's an honor. So we I have. Tried, not- I tried hard for Fromber Scott. I tried really hard to name my child Fromber, um, and I I was was turned away at every at every turn. So I don't know if you uh, did your little Thursday league. Is, is that now finished? Because we we kind of dropped the ball on on giving updates on that. The league itself is not finished, uh, but our participation in it is. Um, my my teammate had uh, a little bit of a medical issue that required him to be in the hospital for a couple weeks, and then with the way the heat is, it's. I mean, the nice part about living in Houston. Scott was you get the the sea breeze that comes in at the end of the night and, and somewhat cools things off. Up here, that does not happen. It stays well above a hundred until ten, eleven o'clock at night. So uh that five, five thirty tea time is absolutely brutal. And that I just I just couldn't justify doing that to myself anymore. Um but we have been we've been getting out uh every Sunday. We've been playing uh, game starting to turn back around. I had, I felt like I went through a little bit of a hiccup after, uh, taking some time off with, with the birth of my daughter and, uh, obviously not be able to get out and practice and my club being closed for renovations. Uh, so I'm finally starting to see a little bit of a semblance of, of what I expect out of my golf game. Yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't played since that round, uh, that, you know, that I described, you know, before where, you know, Looking at it, it, everything except for the score was encouraging. I mean, I hit seven or eight greens, which is, you know, not something that, you know, I was doing there before. The only problem is I I did, I mentioned this on, you know, on the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I went to Tom's Rhinoplasty. Uh, got the, you know, got the balloon sign of plasty, got the deviated septum fixed. And so, you know, they, that pretty much put me down, you know, for a couple of weeks where, you know, you really can't get out there. They didn't even want me lifting as much as 15 pounds. And, you know, I have to tell you, I went, uh, I did postdoc last, actually the Wednesday after our last show, I have cried in pain twice as an adult. And that was one of them. And the other one was the dentist. Um, so, you know, it's, so what they do basically is after they do the balloon sinoplasty, uh, and, and I didn't even know this is what they did. They basically are just opening things up. They don't even take anything out during the surgery. No, they wait until you're like awake and feeling everything. So they stick a little tube up your nose and it's like a shot back. And so think about it like the COVID, you know, old fashioned COVID test where you're touching your brainstem. So imagine that with a vacuum. I mean, that's just, it, it was, it was the most painful, but you know, afterwards it's like, you know, I can actually feel my breath for like the first time in about four or five years. I got to be honest with you. I did not mind the deep COVID test. You know, it felt like the best nose pick I'd ever had in my entire life. Like it literally, I, I was like, I can I can breathe. Like I taking it all in. Like, uh, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. 
So, you know, I, I'm looking forward to getting back out there. You know, I've, I've actually, you know, when I talk to them, they want to put another device in me to help with the sleep apnea. And I kind of been joking that, you know, with my insurance, I've got like a punch card where I've got a free surgery coming uh, if I do it before December 31st. So I'll probably be doing that right before Thanksgiving because they want me to take a week off. And it's like, I, I can't take a week off of, of work. So if I do it before Thanksgiving break, you know, you get that whole week and, you know, I can, you know, I can make that work. Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you have a free one coming to you, uh, it'd be, it'd be silly not to use it, right? When you've got that deductible all burned up already, get it all in, get it all in now uh, and, and take care of it. But while we were still talking golf, there's, there's something I wanted to bring up, Scott. And I think this is one of the things I miss the most about my membership as, as my course is under construction right now or reconstruction um, is, is fighting that golf now battle. I haven't had to do I hadn't had to do that for more than a year as 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 members of the course. We got tea time availability two weeks out. Versus the public got it one week out. So when we check in for our tea time, say, hey, two weeks from now, keep it going. Uh, and I hadn't had to fight the tea time battle in more than a year. But now that uh, that course is you know under construction and getting redone, we're out having a fight with everybody else on golf now. And man, it is it is a it's a, a battlefield out there. It is it is no joke trying to get something eight eight thirty in the morning. Yeah, that uh, that was the we played um, my round. I played on a Tuesday, uh, and it was with a group called the Bandits. I think I described to you. Uh, it might be something your dad's interested in because it's it's all people basically in their fifties and sixties. Yeah, I did um, mention it to him, and, and you know, and it, they tee off at like a, I think I want to say eight thirty, and they do it uh, a shotgun start, and so everybody gets done at the same time. And, you know, there's money involved, but it's not really for, you know, placing. So, I mean, there, you can, you know, you can say you have whatever handicap you want to say, basically. It doesn't really matter. Uh, so, you know, a good low pressure environment, you know, meeting, meeting people. You know, obviously, I, um, I played with my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law is actually considerably older. He just turned 65. So, um, he's just retired. And so he gets to play. He has actually gotten to the point where he's better than me. When we first started playing, you know, when my sister and him got married, I mean, I was carrying a 10 and he's carrying a 25 and I almost feel like that's flipped. Like he was bragging the other day, like he shot 77 at Bay Forest. I was like, okay, you know, got things moving. Uh, and I've never really had trouble getting on courses down here, I guess, you know, but then again, you know, it's been a while since I've played on the weekend. Yeah, it's that weekend tea time that hurts. Just, uh, man, Altuve just booted one there to get out of an inning. But it's, you know, we like to play on Sundays. My group does. Um, so it's tough. It's it, When you can play on the week, obviously that's the benefit of being retired. And, man, that's the dream one day is just being able to go out and play golf every single day during the week when, when no one else is out there. Um, but, yeah, trying to fight that that. Sunday morning crowd is is rough, and I'm looking forward to football season because, you know, the last couple of years with the Texans, especially being garbage. Number one, I don't watch the full game; I watch red zone only, because um, I don't want to get mad. I don't want to sit there and get pissed off on a Sunday and ruin my day. So, if we get the red zone, I can watch it. But 
when you're sitting there for an hour and a half, you're like, man, I haven't seen the Texans in a while. Uh, I guess we haven't been in the red zone much today. And you look at the scores, 28 to nothing. You say, oh, no, we haven't. But, um, you know, those Sunday tea times up here eventually will open up more as the Cowgirls uh, get their season rolling because we noticed last year about 11, 11.30 every, every day that that course cleared. But, um, yeah, it's been – it's tough, man. we got to wake up. Right early, the the tea times released for the course have been playing at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays, and so it. I mean, it's literally like buying concert tickets, Scott. Like if you don't click and pay immediately on golf now, it is you know like trying to deal with freaking Ticketmaster. You know, my favorite course. I think they've shut down my favorite course that I used to play in when I was at TCU in Fort Worth. What was it? Uh, Zebos. Maybe a different name now, but I definitely don't. I don't think I don't think the course exists, honestly. So there's there's a place over off uh, when you go up thirty uh, called New Orleans Knights. I don't know if you're uh, it was a strip club. And so I remember, you know, there's a there's a few different times. And, and Zebos is this course. It's like there there's no OB. There's you know there's water, but not a whole lot of it. You know, they they nary a bunker on the course. I mean, it's like you're back then. You're paying like ten dollars to play. There were a couple of times where I I kind of you know maybe hooked it off the tee, and so I'm having to hit it over New Orleans nights to get to the hole. And there was one time I did it. I, I, I hit it over. I got a blind shot, you know, and that's back in the days when I could hit the ball as high as I, I wanted to hit it, hit it to three feet, you know, from the cup, you know, for the tap in birdie. I mean, it was, you know, over the, over the strip club, which, you know, how many people can honestly say that, you know, Hey, I, I hit it over the strip club for a birdie. You know, there, there can't be that many. You know, speaking of over the strip club, I, where would you compare that shot? To say, you know, a tin cup off the porter shitter, um, onto the green. Both, both, you know, useful needed shots as we, uh, you know, in the course of the round, tin cup had to get a little momentum going. And he banked one off the porter shitter. Scott hooked one the way left, went over the strip club. You know, who, who's to say was the better shot? You know, actually, you know, we were going to dive into sports movies, but I don't even think that was the most impressive shot in that movie. I mean, to me, the guy beat a pretty damn good golfer with garden equipment. That was, yeah. But also uh, like he's cheating. Like, like you're not allowed to putt like that. I mean, like, I, I don't know that that is impressive, but also like, is it really that impressive when you look at the fact that like, he's picking it up and hitting it. So like, I don't know. I'd never tried it, but like, I'd have to think, if I took an aluminum baseball bat and a Pro V1 out there, I could get some distance off the tee. What about – I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think it would be worth trying. Like, next time I go out with my friends, I'm going to bring a, a aluminum bat, a shovel, a rake, and a pool cue. Uh, you know, but then shooting even par with a 7-iron, that that's that's also – I mean, that's that's got to be impressive. I don't, I don't know. I mean, because I know you, you've broken par, but you've broken par. I've never par. broke par. Well, you, in nine nine holes, you've oh yeah, par, but not with with fourteen clubs, not with a seven. I played <laughs> I played nine holes with just a seven iron one time, and I think I shot like thirty nine or something like that just to do it. But it was at a country club I was the member director at that wasn't terribly long, and so like I could get away with 
seven iron, seven iron on both those par fours because it was like 350, 375, stuff like that. Now, were you also putting with the seven iron? I was. Oh, man, that's impressive. It's really not that hard. Like, it's just a bump and run. Like, yeah, or, you, um, or you just blade it. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, Once I, you figure it out, like the first couple holes, you may have a couple issues with it, but eventually, like, it's just a bump and run shot. So that wasn't the issue. I mean, I've I used to do like a little little series of videos for this country club I worked at. I played like a par four with, I mean, a par five with a, nothing but a pitch wedge. Uh, I did a whole nine holes with nothing but a seven iron. Uh, I did like up and down challenges, like trying to show off this course. And then like the head pro came in and was like, uh, we're not going to do this. It makes us look unprofessional. Okay. So I've got, uh, so I got two questions here for you. We're opening up there here with our, with our movie edition of the program. We, we, cause we, we've mentioned these movies before, but we really haven't, you know, ranked them. So first you're going to rank your golfing movies. So the only ones I'm really familiar with that, you know, are, are really out there. You've got your, your, your two Caddyshacks. You've got your Legend of Bagger Vance. And of course you've got 10 Cup. So that's going to be the first question. And then the second There's question. More. There's some more good ones outside of that. And then this, oh yeah, Dead Solid Perfect is one I've seen. Um, but I'm going to let you, number one, rank order those movies. And what, then about num- the, what about the greatest game ever played? The one with Shia LaBeouf? Oh, he's, yeah. he's Francis Wamey? Oh, That's a pretty good movie. I haven't seen that one. But uh, I want to let you also pick if you had to be the star of any of those films, like which one, you know, which one would you most like to be? So you know, ranking order and then which of the stars would you like to be? Well, I think you could, let's start from the bottom. Obviously, I, I think anyone who's ever seen a movie or played golf would put Caddyshack 2 as, as the worst <laughs> golf movie ever made. Um, it's not good. My I still remember when my mom came home from Sam's one day with Caddyshack. I had just seen Caddyshack for the first time. She's like, oh, I found Caddyshack 2. I was so excited. And then I watched it, and it was just like, what the fuck? fuck was that man like that was one of the worst sequels i've ever seen um after that uh i put the greatest game ever played with with friend with uh shia labeouf there playing francis we may fantastic movie really is but when you look at those other three um it, there is a little bit of separation there but i still remember watching that movie a lot um it features uh Harry Varden, Francis We May. Uh, there's some good acting in it, and it's it's pretty well done. So I enjoyed that one. Uh, and here's where it gets tough. And I think I don't want to be that guy and 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 move Bagger Vance higher than it should be. It's it's three, but it needs to be three with an asterisk because I was just talking to my wife about that movie because it's a fantastic film. It is a absolutely fantastic movie. Um, I, I think. Will Smith gives an unbelievable performance. Uh, I think Matt Damon is fantastic in that movie. And I and I think it's a, a great movie that, honestly, I'm due for a rewatch on it because I haven't seen it in a while. Uh, and then I got to go Tin Cup 2 solely because Caddyshack is so quotable on the golf course. I think there's so many one-liners in the movie Caddyshack um, uh, you know we're forgetting Happy Gilmore. 
I, I, you know, uh, that's another one that needs to be in this conversation as well. You're right. Uh, you're right. On you know, that. I, I think Happy Gilmore for me probably goes, probably goes at four, and you bump down greatest game ever played. I'd still put Bagger Vance a little bit above that. Happy Gilmore's great. It's hilarious. It's a heartfelt movie. Um, but I, some my list would go Caddyshack, Tin Cup, Bagger Vance, Happy Gilmore, greatest game ever played, uh, and and Caddyshack too. I'm I'm actually you know in a low drama moment going to actually echo that same list because you know the thing is about Happy Gilmore. There's so many quotable scenes, but the movie as a whole is just not probably not quite as good as the other ones. But like I go in I there, don't know, man. I just I, when I'm on the course, when I'm on the course though, like you know, well, the scene with Bob Barker is just pure comedy goal. Bob Barker stuff is great. But, but I sit there when I'm on the course and I nail a long putt, I pull the sh- the full on shooter McGavin. I start to choke on that, baby. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's hilarious. I mean, that guy's like one of the best villains ever, you know, because he's just so over the top. One of the best stories my brother's ever told me is uh, he had me in stitches when he says this. So he goes and he plays at the uh, Pebble Beach compound with some of his work people that he takes out there. And you have to get a caddy to play at these courses. And so he's got the caddy and he's got, he's on a par five. And the caddy's telling him to lay up. He, there's no way he can get it there. And he goes, Mr. Gilmore hit on that green no less than a half hour ago. And the guy just stares at him, didn't give him a chuckle or a laugh. And I'm cracking up. And I think that's the funniest thing my brother's ever said. And this caddy had nothing for him. But, yeah, I think there's some quotable ones in Happy Gilmore. I think the Bob Barker stuff is fantastic. I think uh, some of the shooter stuff where he's sitting there talking to Doug where he's like, you know, I got H-A on one cheek and then P-P-Y right there on the next. You tell me how I'm supposed to putt with that going on, Doug. You know, that kind of stuff is always classic. But Caddyshack's a better on-course quote. I, oh, yeah. I, you, you will get me in stitches much quicker with a, with a well-placed Caddyshack quote than than you will uh, with, a, with, a, with a happy giveaway. That being said... My brother and I pretty much always have a tradition. If one of us makes a par on the first hole, and it's never never on purpose, it always happens like this. The other person will say, "Nice par, David," and then that then the other brother goes, "I'll take eighteen of them," and then the first one goes again, "Do it, and I'll own you." So I mean, that just has to happen. Like you got to give them the uh, the tin cup start. Oh yeah, and so you know the thing is when you mentioned the Caddyshacks, to me the person who makes Caddyshack. Versus the second one is Ted Knight. Hey, he, Rodney Dangerfield. Well, Rodney Dangerfield, but the thing is, Ted Knight plays the perfect stick up the ass. I mean, uh, Robert Stack is just, I mean, he's just kind of there. And it, 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 you can't. And Chevy sell. Chase is terrible. Chevy Chase is absolutely terrible. Oh, he sold it. He just sold out for that last one. I mean, it was just horrible. But uh, yeah. It has so many quotable scenes, like Bill Murray just sitting there, you know, Cinderella boy, former greenskeeper, about to be Masters champion. He's 270 out. He's got a five iron. It's in the hole. It's in the hole. But the best part is, too, if you listen to him describe the distances that he is away from the hole, 
He's not advancing very far with those. Oh, no. He's no. like getting 100, 110 yards out of his five iron, right? And he's like, oh, he got all of that one. And he's like, he's uh, 300 yards out here. Uh, <laughs> just like, what? I thought you got all of that one. Uh, it, I mean, it's it's pretty great. I love it. He's sitting there talking about how he was, you know, caddying for uh, the Dalai Lama. Big hit of the llama. Big, big hit of the llama. You know, well, actually, you know, if the guy at Pebble Beach, and this is what, I, you know, tell your brother. If the, the caddy at Pebble Beach will mark his putt with a Ritz cracker, give that guy a 20. I mean, that guy does you know, an extra 20 for the tip. And then pick it up and eat it. <laughs> yeah. and, then pick, and then pick it up and take a bite of the cracker. Or I think you got to go around pocketing quarters. I think that's my move. Like if I go to one of those fancy clubs and I'm a caddy, I start pocketing quarters, Happy Gilmore style. I, I think that's the way you got to do it because – Everybody gets a good chuckle, and you up your tips for the day because now you get an extra couple bucks and lose change. That you know, you get the subway sandwich. You know, after that, I mean, that's just you know, oh man. So, how, how many times after your buddies hit one in the water do you go, "That's a peach, hun"? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty. You know, I'll always look. You know, and and Brian Doyle Murphy, you know, is an underrated guy in that movie. Oh, uh, I'm hot today. You know, that whole, you know, man, she really needs you. Pick that up. Pick that up. And you know, throw it away. You know, it was, oh, man. I like the, uh, hey, this is the exclusive club, so uh, don't tell them that you're Jewish. Jewish. Yeah, I mean, that was just every, you know, Rodney Dangerfield was on. You know, Jackie Mason was not the worst part of Caddyshack 2. He wasn't as good as Rodney Dangerfield, obviously. But my favorite part of him is because there's a guy I played, you know, and I played with some guys in college. We were at the, we worked at the newspaper staff and we were playing that course, uh, Zebos, you know, with the New Orleans Knights. And these guys are shooting like, we, we used to have an expression. The easiest shot in golf is the fourth putt. Not for these guys. These guys were doing the full putt putt, you know. Six is your max on putts. Um, but he was sitting there, and we have a hole that's right next, it's adjacent to the road, busy street. He's freaking aiming at the road. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing? And he does the Jackie Mason where it just goes, and it starts bending around, and it actually goes to the right side of the fairway. I mean, he had a worse. Uh, slice than Jackie Mason in that movie. It was just the most hilarious thing. And who would have thought Caddyshack 2 was actually on the forefront of technology as that shotgun club basically now exists. Like, you can you can play golf that way. That is a club. Um, and maybe not the, the scope putter thing that he has. Um, but, I mean, legitimately, like, there's a, a golf the club only- that you just, like, set it and it shoots it out like the 240. Only- the only problem is, is it interferes with pacemakers. <laughs> that is that is an issue. Uh, but hey, the golf the game's getting younger, and uh, I mean it would help. I, well, how many how many strokes around do you think that would save you if you had the old uh, radar radar putter or whatever that thing was? Well, with the way I played last time, I, I'd probably shoot probably eighty eighty one versus ninety two. I mean, it was you know. I tell you, that was a rough round putting. But um, so okay, so you got to be one of the one of the heroes of one of those six films. Who you taking? Mm, okay, so 
Let's clarify a few things then first. Who is the hero of Caddyshack? Uh, you know, I'm going to let you go uh, either, you know, Chevy Chase or the young kid. Danny Noonan. Danny Noonan. Ah, uh, okay. So, I mean, Danny wins a shit ton of money, but the course blows up. Um, not his fault. Not his fault. I don't know. Is it wrong to say Happy Gilmore? Like, he's a budding up-and-coming star on the PJ Tour. He gets a hot-ass uh, girlfriend with the the communications director of the PGA tour uh, gets grandma's house back. Um, I don't know. Cause at the end of the day, like tin cup, like he's still living in his trailer. Like the, the movie ends with him back in the trailer. Like happy won a house. Yeah. But Tim cup did pay off the stripper. Uh, you know, that, he didn't, he didn't pay her off and he became business partners with her. Well, he came business partners, but the, the the thing is, the the prize money from the U.S. Open was enough for her yeah. to pay. It was enough to pay her off, and he, you know, he presumably is now. He's in the next year. Yeah, he, he's in next year plus and the Masters. You know that he could. You know, since he's he probably goes the Bland route too, right? Like the the guy who had the hole in one the PGA Championship, where he gets a couple couple sponsors exemptions. Uh, I don't know. I, I I still think. Well, the thing is about these movies, though, and and you can, and I didn't see the greatest game ever played, so I, I I didn't see that movie. But every one of the other ones, uh, maybe not Caddyshack two. Now that I'm thinking about it, but the other ones, the the star gets the girl. Correct. So, so it really it, comes down to which girl do you like the most? So I, I you know, God, that's hard. Right? Am I wrong? Because, like, in every movie, yeah, the, it, whoever you deem as the star, right, they win the tournament or the round or whatever and get either A, a lot of money, or B, an exemption to other tournaments to where you can get money, like in Tin Cup's case, and you get the girl. So either the girl is, I don't know, the, the little Irish girl from, from Caddyshack with Danny Noonan. Well, or you could go with uh, Judge Mel's niece. But that's Chevy Chase who gets Lacey Underall. Well, but he but, also, but, but but Danny Noonan also gets her. But not in the end. Not in the, the end. end. She, right. Yeah. And so, and then if you want to be Chevy Chase, then you have to look at the fact that your golf game's destroyed in Caddyshack 2 and you're a mental midget playing indoor rounds, you know, acting like a fool in a country club you're once the boss at. So I throw Chevy out of there. Uh, I didn't really like that little Irish girl very much. So let's throw Danny Noonan out. Um, Rene Russo was wonderful in the movie, but, uh, I don't know, man. Coster went to UH in the film. He's a cougar. Um, it's a tough one to pass up, but I still think it's happy. I still think you gotta go happy Gilmore. Well, you know, I might Grandpa built that house with his bare hands. I'm yeah, that's true. I might go Matt Damon. That's just a good simply, one too. Just simply because, one. you know, cause I he don't was know. Hot. I don't the know. Girl, if, the girl in that movie was Charlie's. Hot. Charlie's Tarrant. I don't know. Do you know? Oh, how, is it? Is Charlie's Theron was the one? Yeah. In that movie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. See now, do you know how she was discovered? I don't. This is a great story. She was discovered because she was having an absolute fit, like a just a angry fit in a bank. Like she's like, you know, somebody pissed her off. She's yelling obscenities and all this, that, and the other, and she got discovered that way. I mean, that's, you know... I yell at people all the time. Why am I not famous? 
Well, you know, it's kind of almost the, the second best story is, I don't know if you uh, knew how Pamela Anderson was discovered. I, uh, wasn't she like, no, she posed nude after the, the, the boob job. No, I don't know how. She was at a uh, Canadian football league game and they showed her on the Jumbotron. She was okay. part of the audience. And then all, everybody was like, oh my God. And she's, you know, so this she's is like, hot. yeah, pre-surgery and all that kind of, you know, stuff. But well, she was hot before the boob job when she was on home improvement. Um, so, yeah, so I might go Matt Damon. Just because, yeah, just because. And that's a really good film. I, I, I'm I'm with you. I haven't seen that in quite a while. I think it's but, worth a rewatch, Scott. I, I was sitting here thinking before we started the show, it, it might be time to rewatch Legend of Bagger Vance. And I'm more sold on it now than I was before the show. I but, think I now remembering that it's Charlize Theron, a real young Charlize Theron in that movie. It's, it's definitely time for a rewatch. Well, the other part of it too was um, the guys that play the ancillary characters, you know, uh, the guy, Walter Hagen, the guy who yeah, plays Walter Hagen's a good actor. He, he is D day from animal house. I don't know yes. if you go back there. Um, we just saw, we just watched my cousin Vinny again. So I mean, you he's he's, last week he's the sheriff. Week. He's a you know sheriff in that one, but the guy who played uh, Bobby Jones was in a show called The Forty Four Hundred, which is a USA show that we watched back in the day. There's um, another good movie called Bobby Jones Stroke a Genius. By so, the way, that's the one you should well, check out. And he was an underrated. I mean, the 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 interplay between those three guys because you know Bobby Jones is just you know the perfect gentleman. Walter Hagen is obviously not. Um, but just watching that interplay between, you know, those, all those three, and you know, and they end up winding up in a tie at the end. I mean, you just can't, uh, spoiler alert for the viewers or listeners. Yeah, that's true. That's true. 25 year old movie, Scott, they might not have had a chance to see it. I told you about the time we, we went, um, a friend of mine as my roommate and I, we, uh, was living with at the time we watched, uh, Titanic. And we're just like, how are they going to do the sinking of the ship? I mean, how are they going to CGI this thing? And the person behind us said, you gave away the ending. (laughs) It's like, dumbass, uh, Titanic. I mean, come on. Where are we at here? But yeah. Graveman just got a gift, Scott. Kendall Graveman just got a pitch that was a good two inches off the plate. Oh, I'm I'm probably behind. I got two outs. There's two outs. That was the second out. So I'm I'm two one count, two out. So I don't I don't know if I'm ahead or behind. You're ahead. It's uh, all good. But speaking of Graveman and uh, the Astros, you know, we talked last week. Where was our panic meter at? You know, um, I had mine maybe a little bit high, and then, man, the, you know, Astros had a huge opportunity uh, with the Rangers. Losing, I think, you know, they're at, they're at five or six in a row. You had the Mariners coming to town. And and, and that went about as poorly as it could. Uh, all all sources say there was a, you know, players-only closed-door meeting. Um, and, you know, where are you at, Scott? Because we were high on John Singleton. He's done nothing since that game, although he had a double tonight. Um, you know, Graveman hasn't been the same reliever he was last time he was here or maybe he was you know he kind of was a little shaky towards the end of his tenure um 
And, you know, you look at what Christian Javier has been doing lately. It hasn't been great. He's trying to tinker with breaking pitches and off-speed stuff because his fastball's not there. Um, Stanek hasn't been the same guy out of the bullpen. There's a lot of cause for concern. But at the same time, the Astros win last night. The Rangers lose. They're a game and a half back from first place. You know, where, where are you at with this team right now, Scott? I am all over the place, to tell you the truth. Uh, because coming into that, um, coming into that series with Seattle, we had been ten and five in the month of August, and we had basically won, you know, numerous seasons uh, series. We won, you know, two of three from the from Baltimore. You know, that was a pretty darn good series. Um, we, we two of three from the Rangers. So what's funny though is how, and and, and this is where we've talked about dusty before and I'm not going to get on dusty immediately, but what's funny is, is how the season has ebbs and flows. And so like, for instance, Rafael Montero has quietly put together a couple of good months here. Um, I don't know if you've noticed his ERA is nearing five, which still is not good, but you know, it's, it's starting to look better. Great. Like two, it's like mid twos in the last two months though. Uh, Graveman as an Astros ERA is about one. Now he's looked awfully shaky in some of those innings, but you know, he's, um, he's kind of become the Phil Maton now that the Maton is, uh, on the shelf. The two things I heard today is what is one of the, is the thing that kind of bothered me. Now, did you hear the report about why Jordan is not in the lineup tonight? I heard he, he hit his hand in a door at home is what I, I saw. Yes. I don't know if that's the truth. Jammed a finger in the door. I've done that, and it fucking hurts. I shot my finger on the fridge the other day, trying to be quiet because the baby was sleeping. And I got to be honest with you, I couldn't tee it up the next day, Scott. It was it was still throbbing. Well, it's not that I doubt the injury. It's just, you know, when you look at all the things that have happened this year, Altuve getting hit in the, in the World Baseball Classic, you know, misses two months. Has an oblique injury where, you know, Dusty says, oh, it'll be about a day or two and ends up being about a month. Uh, Jordan has missed for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, your best player consistently misses virtually the entire Mariner series because he's sick. Um, it's just. And he was trying to play the final game, and Dusty told him, no, we need you down the stretch. And it's just one of those things. I mean, like, like the other news I heard today was that Abreu's back has been bothering him all year. Um, and I don't know if that's one of those like, well, here's why he sucked this year, or if it really has bothered them. And if it, you know, and and that that gives you some bit of hope because you hope like, okay, maybe he gets right and becomes the Abreu of old. But also goes to point back to not having a GM this offseason who maybe would have done a little bit more due diligence on a health check on a player of that age to make sure that his body was ready for a season. Or say Michael Brantley or, you know, any of those kind of deals. But see... But hey, he's close. Brantley's close. The myth of Brantley. Yeah. What I feel is that I feel like I think we'll get to the playoffs. Once we get to the playoffs... Anything can happen, but I think two or three things are kind of working against us. I think number one, we've talked about some of the dusty moves 
and about the fact that, you know, to me, Yair Diaz is your rookie of the year if he's your everyday catcher. Um, right now, it's going to be Gunnar Henderson, I think. But if Yanir Diaz is playing five days a week, tell me who else is a better rookie in the American League this year. Um, but there's also, you know, the, the lack of GM, like you mentioned, where we're making some bad signings. But the other thing is just some incredibly bad luck. And it kind of makes me have that feeling of maybe this is not our season. And I don't think it's anything. And, and this is where the funny thing where the, the players only meeting comes in. I don't think it's that these guys don't care. I, you know, I don't think it's that they're, you know, they're not focused or there's a lack of effort or anything, you know, stupid like that. I think flat out the problem is, is that you've got three young pitchers who are probably nearing their innings limit, limit on the season. You don't have a whole lot of depth behind that. Fromber hasn't been Fromber in about a month, you know, with the exception of that no-hitter. So you tell me, you're going to run out in a playoff series. I've got you JV in game one. Who after that do you have faith in that's going to pitch you six innings of good baseball in a playoff series? Yeah, that's tough. I think I think in a playoff series, I think Fromber I do have a little bit of faith in. And Urquidy, simply because of past performances, right? I think those guys have shown you they have an ability to turn it up to another level in the playoffs. But I, I do agree that you know, take out the no hitter where the crazy movement worked in Fromber's favor, he hasn't been sharp in a while. Um, and it seems like he's lacked control both with his pitches and maybe a little bit of his emotions as he's gone headhunting when he's not having good games. And you can't have that in the playoffs, right? You can't lose your starter in the third inning because he gets ejected for hitting people, and now you got to burn a whole bullpen. Um, I think JP France, though, I mean, I, I think – I don't know, Scott. I, I think France – or Kitty's shown you nothing but but balls of steel in the playoffs. I, I, I don't – see a reason to doubt him until he he gives me one. I don't know that he, I mean, when was the last time he made a start? I haven't seen him in the rotation. I, I saw him work a couple of innings in relief. He got that skipped looked, the last time around. Yeah, was, that looked, and he looked pretty good in those couple of innings, which almost makes you wonder, okay, maybe is that his role moving forward? Um and if that's the case, I wouldn't mind that. I think someone's um, going to get skipped every time through right now right. to keep JV on every fifth day. And other than that, they're going to find a way to make it work. I think JP France has given me no reason to doubt him up to this point. But you reach a, you reach a point where he's, he's reached his innings limit, or at least the, the maximum number of innings that he's worked. I think Javier's in the same boat. Um because he's never worked that many innings because he's always yo-yoed between the rotation and the bullpen up until this season. Um, Hunter Brown, the same way. I think he's kind of reaching his you know point where he's worked you know as many innings as he possibly can. I mean, as far as Urquidy in the playoffs, yeah, but he's got to show me something before we get there. I don't know. Um, I mean, he, he only pitched in one game in the run last year, and it was three innings of – of shutout baseball. He he reminds me, and I don't know if you remember this, like um, Grinky 
in that 2021 playoff run where he had been shut down, I think, in September. And so he flat out didn't, he, he couldn't be stretched out. So he went up and I think in one of the games against the Braves, I mean, he pitched three scoreless innings, but that was all he had. Yeah, it's kind of like Syndergaard last year with the Phillies where like he was going to give you two or three innings as a, not a starter, but more of that opener role, right? Yeah, and I think Urquidy could do that. But I, I don't know if that's the direction you want to go in the playoffs. And so if if you could get the Fromber of old and you could have and JV can be JV, you get two starters, you can, you can go through a five-game series and, and you can make that work. But when you start to get into, you know, say the ALCS, I think that might be, you know, where things kind of run, you know, run their course because most teams now are using four starters. You name me four guys you're really confident in right now. Yeah, if Javier could get it figured out, it would make things a lot easier because he was that guy everybody was counting on this year to be a Cy Young candidate, take that big step forward and, and help anchor this rotation with Fromber. And unfortunately, that just has not been the case. And the Astros have had to kind of slug their way some wins here lately at times, you know. And and I don't think that that's not an option in the playoffs, especially when you look at, you know, who we could be facing. You know, they can slug, we can slug, and maybe that's what the series ends up being. But I think everything we've seen in the playoffs in the last five years and all these runs that we had is things tighten up, you know, whether it's, a change in the baseball or whatever you want to see when the playoffs come around, you don't get these high scoring games as much. It's better pitching. They are tighter games and everything matters. And um, we just, we need to, we need to find, and I say we, I'm an Astros fan. I live or die with this team. Uh, we need to find that, as you said, those who's behind Justin Verlander. Cause we've got a month to figure it out. Um, the offense is fine. Uh, it could be spread out. Some of these runs better. Sure. But, but when you put your best nine out there against our best nine, I, I feel confident with our offense. Well, the, the, the things that I've noticed, and if you compare this team with teams in the past, I think you know, the big thing is the Astros play what I like to call bully ball, where if they get up on you early, they're going to bury you. I mean, they're going to score 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 15 runs. Um, and they can do that as good as any team in baseball. And if you look at their records over the last several years in blowout games, which you can go to baseball reference and, and they'll have it, um, their records in blowouts is, is just tremendous. But if you look at why this team loses, and you, if you track it from 2018, you know, because 17 was kind of a different year, I think, in a lot of because we were first in run scored in the lead, in baseball. But if you look at 2018, I don't know if you track this, we surrendered the fewest number of runs since the ad- adoption of the DH in 2018. Yeah, so, we lose a lot of games like two, we lose a lot of games 2 yeah. nothing, 3-1. But that's been different this year in that we've lost some games eight to seven or nine to eight. And and that's something we never used to do. I mean, we would get shut out maybe almost seemingly once a week or once every other week, but we've only been shut out five times this year. I don't know if you knew that we were shut out um, 11 times last year. 
So, you know, yeah, season's not over, but we're on pace to only have like maybe seven or eight shutouts. So we're actually better at avoiding the shutout. And I think a lot of that is just the lineup is deeper. Um, There are guys, you know, obviously like Chaz McCormick, who went from solid to all-star level, you know, in a year. Yeah, Yanir Diaz, who seemingly just gets a hit every game. Um, I'd love to see him draw some more walks, but you know, that, that's going to be what it's going to be. Um, and you know, when you can have your eighth hitter of your lineup be Jeremy Pena, you know, I'm sorry. There's a lot of teams that'd love to have Jeremy Pena as your eighth hitter in your lineup. And then you're not as mad about the 245 batting average, right? Because sure. your eighth hitter hitting 245, well, that's not bad. He's, he's got a little, little bit pop. of pop. He's got yeah. some speed. Like, I'm okay with that. And Eight, he's drawing some walks. Auto. And he's yes. drawing some walks. Uh, his on-base percentage is 20 points higher this year than it was last And he's a gold glover. I take a gold glove shortstop who hits around 250 with some pop every day if he's my eighth hitter. If I'm expecting him to hit second, no, I'm not happy with that. He's basically Anderson Simmons. If you remember him, uh, particularly when he was coming up with the Braves, uh, Anderton Simmons was a guy that was like, if you look at defensive runs saved, it was like 20, 30 runs a year. I mean, it was ridiculous when he was with the Braves. And he was hit like maybe 260 with a little bit of pop. Um, but if you put in that defense on top of that decent offense, he was a damn valuable player. Of course, the Angels acquired him. And, of course, when he went to the Angels, he sucked because, you know, that, that seems to be the Angels, you know, existence these Something days. Something in the water out there. I don't know what it is. It's the existence these days. I mean, my goodness. Um, I, I, you know, Mike Trout is going to be a Hall of Famer. But the last three or four years have to be the most disappointing thing for anybody who's an Angels fan or even just a Trout fan. Just this guy can't stay healthy. Um, I mean, it's almost like he's the, you know, the the 21st century Mickey Mantle almost in that regard. Um, Because, you know, a lot of people, they talked about watching Mickey Mantle, especially when he first came up, how fast he was, how great of an athlete he was. Just couldn't stay healthy. Um, So... That's that's where I'm at. Oh, looks like we score another one. Um, so uh, for those of y'all who are listening in, uh, you're listening in on a Wednesday morning. You know, the Astros are are now up on Tuesday evening, you know, looking to get JV another win um, as an Astro. Um, the only active pitcher with 250 or more victories. Does he go in as an Astro, Scott? Two World Series rings with the club. A lot of, you know, I'd say a majority of his team accolades as a player have been here in Houston as maybe his personal accolades have been in Detroit, but the, the, the run that he put together from 2017 through 2022 uh, and now into 2023 in this Astros uniform, I mean, there's a serious case to be made that this, this guy, his best years were as an Astro. Oh, I, I definitely think that's true. Um, the, the only problem you have is that he, you know, he spent longer in Detroit. Uh, he did have a Cy Young and MVP. He did. In, in Detroit, that's true. But he's got the two Cy Youngs uh, here in Houston. He's, you know, I think what Thir- is- 13 years in Detroit, a 3 4 9 ERA, um, six years in Houston, a 2 3 2 ERA. He won three times as many games in Detroit, but his win percentage was 
uh, a lot higher in Houston. He won 76% of his games in Houston, 62% of his games in Detroit. I think you're going to have to get it better than a two to one margin in terms of the years. And so really it's going to depend on, you know, does he finish out his contract? So he finishes out his contract here. He's pitching in 2024 and 2025. The Mets are paying for, you know, more than half of that. Thank you, New York. And if he produces like he has in Houston, you know, even this year's numbers, if he just, you know, produces at this rate for two more years, I don't see, I don't see how you can keep him out, you know, in terms of as an Astro. Because let's say we win a third ring. My God, you know, what, what else do you want? I'm with you. I, I think, uh, I think unless you're a Tigers fan, when you think Verlander, you think Houston Astros. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but um, I, I have some some family in Detroit, and obviously they're going to think of him as a Tiger always, and, and that's fine. But other than this, the, you know, the Tigers have been to the World Series of Verlander. They did not win, um, and a majority of Verlander's best seasons ended in disappointment in Detroit where his best seasons in Houston ended in, in jubilation. So, um, and then in fact, you know, he became a father here. He gets married as an Astro. Uh, his wife is beloved in this city. I mean, she's beloved everywhere, but we really love her here in Houston and, and everybody supports her brand and, and wears her, her cool Astros jackets that she makes. So I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if, if Detroit would appreciate him going in as a tiger the way that Houston would appreciate him going in as an Astro. I think a lot of that's recency bias too. Um, because, you know, let's say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm trying to remember, did Nolan Ryan go in as a Ranger? He did. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that was recency bias because I'm sorry, you know, but he was also pissed at the Astros because they asked him to take a pay cut. Well, but even, even before, if you want to look at pure accomplishments, he had four no hitters with the angels. So, I mean, that's, you know. But he's, but you got to remember, he's a guy from Texas, right? Right. So you had to think he's going to go in with one of those two Texas teams. I mean, if you look at years played with Nolan Ryan, uh, he did nine years in Houston, eight years with the Angels, uh, five years with the Mets, five years with the Rangers. Well, and that was also in the period, if you recall, where players were choosing how they were going in. Because that's when Wade Boggs went in as a Devil Ray. Do you not choose anymore? No. The Hall of so Fame. it's chosen for you? Yes. The, uh, after Ooh. after Wade Boggs did the whole, I'm going to go in as a Devil Ray, they were like, oh, come did, on, no, dude. Didn't he get paid off for that, though? He got like paid to go in as a Devil Ray. I'm sure he did, and, and I'm sure the Hall of Fame's going like, no, no. Because, you know, even if he had gone in as a Yankee, he'd be like, okay, he played a few years in New York, but. Yeah, going as a Devil Ray was just ridiculous. He's it, from he was from Tampa. He was a hometown guy. Yeah, but you know he's so does the Hall of Fame. You know that's that's a that's a fascinating question because you know obviously it's not up to to Verlander. So you know he could say, "Hey, I'm an Astro," and they could say, "Screw you, you're a Tiger." And you know, that's the way it's going to be. So it'll be interesting to see how that that transpires because. I'm with you, though. I'm thinking nationwide, people are going to see him as an Astro, I think, just because of the team success. If you have to go through being booed on this team 
you're an Astro. Like if you, if everyone boos you because you were part of the 2017 team, you're an Astro. I, I don't see how how you can work around that because in you know Dodgers fans still like to boo the still like to boo people. Um, so yeah, you're you're still an Astro in my mind. All right, so. I don't know if you managed to to watch. You mentioned it in passing. So we had our second preseason game uh, with the Texans. They did lose that one, twenty-eight to three, to the Miami Dolphins. Um, as as I've told everybody here, I, I do work for Battle Red Blog. I get paid a nominal amount, and for that, you know, I do need to pay attention. And we do a hair of the dog feature where we can kind of, you know, sarcastically talk about what's going on during the game. So it makes it somewhat fun. Are you, and, and in this game, I think if you're going to look at, you know, the positives and the negatives, the biggest thing is they, they surrendered more than 200 yards rushing. So if you're looking at this defense, what do you, what do you expect to see? when the games become real. I think I expect to see some more, uh, I don't know. I think the scheme's going to be a little bit more tough to just tell. It's not going to be so basic, right? More stunts, more yeah. stuff like that to, to try and stop the run game. Um, I think Will Anderson has graded out as the highest graded rookie uh, in this class so far. So I think, I think he's going to move around a little bit more on that line, Scott. Like, I don't think he's just going to sit on hand of the ground right end the whole game. I, th- I think they're going to move him around um, to try and take advantage of some weaknesses. Like, if you look at how Bosa was used in San Francisco, they moved that guy around on the defensive line, and they created some issues across the line. So I think schematically you're going to see a lot different look or a lot of different looks for the Texans on defense. It's not just give you the base four, three or base three, four stuff that you're seeing right now. Um, but the thing with not stopping the run to me in the preseason is effort, right? Like, I don't know. I, I don't love the idea of not stopping the run in the preseason. Like I, I know a lot of these guys may not make the team. And even if they do, they're going to be special teamers. They're not going to be out there. Um, in these big moments, making tackles, but stopping the run is a culture. That's you cannot win in the NFL. If you don't stop the run, because you'll just never get the ball back. The clock will wind down. You're susceptible to play action all day long. You have to stop the run. You cannot be a good football team without stopping the run. And the Texans haven't stopped the run. I don't know, five years, six years. I can't remember the last time that the Texans have been a good run defense. Uh, probably since Mike v- Mike Vrabel left, I think was the last time the Texans were actually like semi decent on stopping the run. So I'm intrigued to see, but culture wise, the culture's got to be we stuff the run. I think I, I don't know if you saw the uh, the corner that the Texans signed today. Um, he was uh, one of the starters with uh, with Minnesota last year. Um, I think our corners are going to be pretty decent. Scott, so if we can stop the run and play some man coverage, we've got good safeties. We've got, I think you're going to be pretty decent corners. Stop the run, and now you're putting teams in third and eight, third and seven, third and nine. Now Hill comes Will Anderson, pin back your ears, let's go. So I don't know if I'm worried about the run as much as just um, where's the culture of this is the most important thing that we do on defense to stop the run. 
So, you know, and I think the, I have an article that's going to run tomorrow uh, on Battle Red blog. And, and basically what I said is this, is that the point I'm going to, that you made that I'm going to key in on is the whole idea of schemes. You don't have schemes in the preseason. You don't blitz. You don't do any of that stuff. I think the Texans are going to have to win with X's and O's this year because they don't have the Jimmies and Joes yet. Will Anderson's going to be a hell of a player. Now, just imagine if he gets one sack a game and two tackles for loss, which he did this last you know game in a quarter. He does that every week at 17 sacks. That's 30 tackles for a loss. That's a forced fumble every game. There's your defensive rookie of the year if he does that. I mean, there, there's really no doubt about it. And obviously, he's not going to get a sack every game. I mean, that's just not going to happen. But there's going to be some games where he might get two or three. Um, and that just depends on how the other teams scheme against him. If the other teams scheme against him and they have double team him, that means one of the guys on you know the rest of that defense is free. And so somebody's going to have to make some plays. Um, C.J. Stroud, I was really encouraged by. Uh, we did have an interception early in the game by Denzel Perryman. That was a nice pick. Returned it to the six-yard line. And the Texans did nothing. They had a delay of game penalty. And D'Amico decided to go for it. I'm assuming in a regular season, he'd probably kick that field goal from the six. So, you know, it would have been 28 to six. Oh, great. Well, you know, whatever. But in the second drive, C.J. Stroud made about three or four throws that I don't think Davis Mills makes last year. Um, there was one to Robert Woods on the sideline. That was just a, you know, he ran an out pattern. So it's a deep out. So you got to have a pretty damn good arm to get it out there. And he put it in the only place Woods could catch it. And the only place that the defender couldn't. Um, because he was pretty tightly covered in that. And, and then he had another nice throw to Noah Brown um, for about 14 yards. He had a couple of nice plays to Nico Collins. And then, you know, later on in the game, he had an escape. He had a spin move where he avoids a sack, runs around, throws it right to Noah Brown. And what the story with the game was, Noah Brown, you know, hit him in the worst possible place, hit him in the hands. He drops it. And that team had about, you know, we had about five or six drops in that game total. I mean, uh, we, we rag on Davis Mills. He was 10 for 22, but he probably should have been about 14 or 15 for 22 had guys not dropped balls. Um, so the, I think the wide receivers, um, that's going to be, and, and Tank Dell didn't play. Um, I don't know. They mentioned something that maybe he was shaken up or something. I, I think maybe it was one of those things like when after Damian Pierce played in the preseason last year, I don't know if you recall this, he plays in one preseason game. And after that, I said, like, we've seen enough. He's our number one running back. And so I'm wondering if they did that with Tank Dell, where there's like, this dude's our best receiver. <laughs> we don't need to see him anymore. And and if they're doing it that way, I, I'm I'm good with that. You know, see what you want to see. And then, you know, let the, the guys who are 80th or 90th on the depth chart, let them go out there and try to, you know, make some plays. And because if they get hurt, who cares, right? I mean, I don't want to put it that glibly, but yeah, essentially, yeah. Um, I think the third running back spot is something we talked about last week that that's still up for grabs. Uh, Texans signed. Uh, Roundtree, former Chargers running back, and actually got into a discussion on on somebody 
uh, with somebody from uh, one of the Texans Facebook groups. And he actually liked the page and I'm hoping he listens to the podcast this week. But, um, you know, one of the things, Scott, with this with this third running back spot is people think you've got to have a, a third guy that can pound the rock. But but at the end of the day, this person's going to have special teams responsibilities. They're going to be someone who, you know, brings something to the table that your other two guys don't have, right? Singletary is your, your pass catcher. Damian Pierce is your pounder. You know, you got to have maybe a good pass protector or, or, you know, someone who can do a little bit of both. But for whatever reason, uh, Vaccaro wasn't that guy, and, and they want to give, give Roundtree a shot. But no one has stepped up at any point and, and shown that they can be that, that person on special teams or on punt coverage or kick return or punt return. Um, there's only 53 roster spots, right? So those top two running backs, they're going to get carries every game. That third guy, what are you going to do outside of playing running back? that's going to bring value to this roster. And I think that's what, what D'Amico is trying to do. And I commend him for for letting go of a guy early in the process so you realize, I don't have a way to use this guy if it's not handing him the ball on first and second down. Because it gives that guy a chance to maybe go catch on with someone else, and it gives you a chance to evaluate some of your other players and not waste time on someone that you think, maybe, I don't know, I don't want to pull the trigger this soon, let's keep giving him carries. If you know right right away that he can't do the other things that you need the third running back on your team to do, let them go. Go find the guy that can. You've got two guys that you know uh, are, are bona fide NFL running backs, and right now you're looking for, you know, a, a gadget piece or or a special teams guy or, uh, you know, a security blanket. Whatever you, whatever it is, it's not an every down back. So I, I was, you know, perusing through, you know, Cody. He was on with us um, a couple of weeks ago, and he has picked his 53 man roster, and so he had them carrying four backs. And he had them carrying Mike Boone and Dario Gabunlale. Um, he looked really horrible in that first preseason game. So I don't know if you know he makes it back. I don't think he does. I, I, I he's he's not ever really looked great in any of his preseason action. No, and 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 I don't know if we want to go league wide with the intrigue, but obviously uh, I don't. I'm, I'm sure you've heard the news that the Colts have officially. You know, given uh, Zachary Taylor, you know, free reign, you know, to look for a trade. And they've basically have said they want for either a first rounder or first round value, which I, I don't know what that means. I, I guess maybe two a, seconds or, yeah, or you know, I mean, a, yeah, a third in this player or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So, and I'm, you know, I'm not even saying Houston, I don't think Houston's in a position to do that. Um, because, you know, we, we've already given up, you know, a lot to get Will Anderson. But are there any teams out there that you think pay that price for this guy? You know, two years ago, he was the leading rusher in the league. Over 2,000 all-purpose yards, 20 total touchdowns. So, you know, if he's healthy, he's a stud. But I, I have to think that maybe the Colts are going to give him the Deshaun Watson treatment where – he reports he's there, but he's not playing because the whole thing is if he plays, he gets injured. Suddenly you have no trade value. So I have to think maybe the Colts sit him until there's, you know, a suitable trade that they, they, they find. And I, and I think they're going to have trouble finding that first round value because running backs just don't carry that. I mean, I know the 49ers traded um, that for Christian McCaffrey, but Christian McCaffrey is just, 
a all-around better player than Jonathan Taylor because of his receiving skills and the fact that that's what the 49ers do. You know, and and there's a couple things that are working against Jonathan Taylor. Number one, uh, if you trade for him, he was a second-round pick, which means he does not have that fifth year guaranteed in his contract. This is the last year that he's under contract. So you're trading a first-round pick for a guy who very publicly wants a good de- wants a, wants to be taken care of. So at the same time, also he's going to be a free agent next year. It's, it kind of is like what happened with Le'Veon Bell where you were like, why would I trade for this guy when I can just wait and he'll become a free agent? So why would I waste my time doing that? So at the end of the day, why would you give up a first round pick and have to pay him if you can do it and just pay him? Because that's the, that's the preferred option, right? The only reason you would, you would give up the pick if you thought maybe somebody else was, was going to go get him and, and do the same thing and you want to make sure that you have him. But I'm with you, Scott. In today's NFL, I don't want to say backs are a dime a dozen because they're not. But there are three to four guys every year that come into the league and have success in their first couple of seasons as a running back, right? Pacheco was was fantastic last year uh, with the Chiefs and kind of revitalized their running game. People are expecting big things from from Bijan Robinson, uh, the, the the running back for the um, for the Seahawks last year, Walker. I mean, there are good young running backs every year. And, and the way that they get used, you churn them up and then you don't pay them. So to go trade a first-round pick for a guy that you then have to pay, I just don't see it going well. I really don't see him getting what he wants. Yeah, I think what um, – and I can't uh, – I don't know if ba- – is it baseball that does this? Because I, I think baseball occasionally in the past have given you like a 48- or 72-hour window to negotiate with the player. Like if you wanted to trade for a guy and you wanted to sign up to an extension, I think you can do that. Yeah. But I don't know that the NFL does that. Uh, No, I I think you can. I think you can have those conversations. And I I think that's what's going to have to happen. And then, as you said, how many years are you giving this guy and how much longer is he going to be a top flight running back? Because he's going to want, I would say a minimum of 12 million a year which is where the going rate is for those top backs. I mean, guys like Saquon Barkley, um, you, you saw Ezekiel Elliott get cut. He's no longer a top back. He signs with New England. Uh, Delvin Cook, you know, signs with the Jets. I think what's going to have to happen is a lot of these teams, you mentioned guys coming out of nowhere. So you get these guys that you have in camp, and you're thinking, hey, we may have something here. I think what's going to have to take is these teams are going to have to go into the season and find out, oh, shoot, we don't have it. Now we need to go. Or somebody who, you know, what if you're a team who relies heavily on the run? You know, if you're a run first team and injury happens early in the season and you've got all the other pieces in play and you think you can make a playoff run. Or, you know, what if you're another scenario? I, I, like were the the 49ers last year, right? Where they made the trade for McCaffrey. You know, they I think they thought they were not going to be as good as they were and then um you know, they realized, "Hey, we have a chance this year. Let's let's go ahead and, and get this guy and go all in." And so to kind of look at it from that baseball perspective, maybe around week 5, week 6, some teams look around their locker room and go, "Hey, this this group of guys is actually a little bit better than we thought we were. We're running back away. 
we're we're running back away from from making a run at this thing. Let's pull the trigger. I but could, then in that case, I don't think you're getting the first round pick. No, and I don't think you're getting the contract extension. You're no. playing this year out. I think yeah, I think you look at a team like um, the Dolphins and the Bills. I think you know they. I could see the thinking there because I watched that Dolphins team. That Dolphins team, if Tua is going to be healthy, they're going to be a good team. They may make a run at that division if they stay healthy. But you add a, you know, a dominant running back to that offense, man. The Bills, Singletary was their lead back. That's what's kind of funny. He's now the second string back in Houston. So imagine, you know, how starved they are for, you know, a really good running back. You know, that that he'd, he'd be a f- good fit there. Um, I don't see really anywhere else in the AFC. And what's funny is how similar this is to Austin Eckler's situation. Because Austin Eckler, kind of, he wanted a trade. He only has that one year left. And nobody bit. So he's back in L.A., at least for the season. And I think, you know, if if I were the Colts, I'd go ahead and I would, I'd keep him on the shelf. And I'd just sit there and say, we're going to keep you on the shelf until the trade deadline. If the trade deadline comes and nobody's taking you, then we'll, we'll play you. But until then, you know, we're going to keep you on ice. We're going to go with some other backs. And then we're going to wait for a team to get desperate that thinks that, you know, they're running back away from a title. And maybe you can get a second or third round pick at that point. Because the thing is, you spent a second round pick on him. So to me, to get a second back, you get a guy that led the league in rushing, gave you two or three good seasons, and you get a second back for him? That's Yeah, let me, give you, let me give you a scenario. Saquon playing on player tag, right? He's on a one-year mm-hmm. deal, essentially. What if Saquon gets hurt this season, but the Giants are five and two? Saquon's out for the year. Giants are five and two. Do you throw a second or third round out there and see what could happen, knowing that you're a run first team and and you've got Daniel Jones as your quarterback? I think you got to do something like that. Yeah, I think so too. And I and I think you know at that point you would have to play the contract out because Barkley, you know, is still. I mean, that's going to be a messy situation. Um, if that were to happen, I think Barkley, I don't know if he's actually on the tag. I think they may have like agreed on a one-year deal, but it's, it's um, just for this right, year. Though. It's just for this year. Josh Jacobs is another guy that, you know, that the Raiders haven't been able to. They're not going to be with. good though. I don't um, think they're going to, I don't think well, they're no, going to no. be good enough to make that move. Well, no, but they're another team that's, you know, basically year to year with a guy, you know, um, Baltimore could be a team that I could see you know, with a Jonathan Taylor because their running backs are really not that good. But they but they've never had healthy backs too, because they they they've expected JK Dobbins to be that guy and then two years ago he blew out the knee and then they had Gus Edwards who was okay, he's a good guy to fill in, then he gets hurt, and then next thing you know, they're they're down to, to guys they're pulling off the street. Uh I, I think when their running back room is healthy, it's it's actually pretty good. It just has been a couple of years since they've had a, a stable of healthy backs in Baltimore. So maybe that is one, though, Scott. If if the injury bug bites up again in Baltimore, um, you go ahead and pull the trigger and, well, and make that deal. Plus, because you have Odell Beckham there. And how much is Odell Beckham? I mean, how long is he going to play football? So, I'm expecting a big year from Odell. I, I think he's going to ball out. But I think that's one that where you – but if that's your thinking, 
you know, let's strike while the iron's hot. And, you know, let's. Yeah, get no, us, that's a good point. That's you know, a good point. You know, let's get this thing is, is going good. Because I don't know. I'm going to be interested to watch, you know, uh, Ravens, Texans week one, because I, I'm interested to see what this Ravens offense is going to look like. Because basically it looked like, you know, before we're going to throw to Mark Andrews. If Mark Andrews isn't open, Lamar will just kind of run around for a while, maybe gain some yards on the ground, or maybe, you know, somebody will come open when he's r- running around. He'll, he'll play like that for five or six weeks. He'll roll an ankle or he'll get hit. He'll be injured. He'll be out for two to three games or four, you know, five, depending. That's not a – you can't sustain that over a time. So if they have a new offense where they can run Lamar Jackson enough to where he's a weapon but protect him, they could be a really interesting team, I think, in, in the AFC. Yeah, and people forget Lamar Lamar Jackson can throw the ball. He was fantastic at Louisville. Um, he's got a fantastic arm, and, and when his legs are not his his main weapon, they're an additional weapon. He's going to be a dangerous quarterback, and not that he hasn't been, but as you mentioned, he has been able to finish the last couple of seasons because they run that guy into the ground. Uh, you've got some weapons for him on offense this year. I'm with you. I'm excited for that for that opening game. Uh, it should be fun, but. I think we're getting to kind of that, yeah. that that time, Scott, where um it's been it's been a week of of crazy, crazy things of idiots and assholes and scumbags, if I may. Um and I, I know one guy, one former Houstonian in particular, has uh kind of stuck out in your craw. So we talked earlier, you know, we were talking rockets and we were talking about, you know, everybody, I don't know, let's say everybody, a lot of people were expecting Harden, James Harden. Myself included. Our, like I wanted Harden back at that time. Uh, to come back to Houston. And, and really at this point, I don't think anything really dramatically changes if you put Harden in place of Dylan Brooks and, and uh, Fred Van Bleet. I think the Rockets team goes as far as these young guys take them. And it would have been true if Harden were here. Why I'm considering Harden a scumbag is because he now wants out of Philadelphia. And today he came out and he called Daryl Morey a liar. Now, Daryl Morey and James Harden go way back. Daryl Morey rescued him from a bad situation in Oklahoma City. Paired him with Juwan Howard. James Harden said, no, that's not it. Okay. He goes out there and he gets Chris Paul. Two years, no, that's not it. He's not the guy. Then he goes out and gets Russell Westbrook. No, not it either. So he demands a trade. He gets forced, he forces into a New Jersey, excuse me, Brooklyn. I keep calling them New Jersey Nets. I'm old. Got to forgive me here. So he gets to Brooklyn. He forces his way out of Brooklyn because, you know, I I don't know. I don't know if it was Kevin Durant wasn't healthy enough or Kyrie Irving was Kyrie Irving. I, I don't know. Goes to Philadelphia. Has the league MVP playing with him. Now, should he have been the league MVP? I don't know. Um, I still think Joe, for, Joe from 
Denver is the best player in the league, but you know, hey, what do I know? So he is now going to be forcing his way out of his fourth organization. And he's going to be, and he's basically calling the guy who bent over backwards at every step of the way to give him what he wanted. And he's going to call him a liar. I I don't get it. So where does James Harden go from here, Tim? I, I don't know. It's a tough situation. It really is. Because who's going to trade for this guy at this point? You know, the, the Clippers don't have the assets that the 76ers want back in return. Uh, maybe the Suns. I don't know. We'll see what happens. I It's a tough situation because I understand a little bit of where Harden's coming from. Because last year, Harden signed a... Um, you know, he opted out of his deal where he could have made more money, took less money, so that way P.J. Tucker and Dan Wellhouse could go to the 76ers. And he and Daryl Morey had an agreement, uh, under-the-table handshake agreement, that Harden would be taking care of this offseason if he took less money last offseason. Uh, then through negotiations, his camp felt like Morey was about to F him on that, so they go ahead and opt in and demand the trade. So, number one, I get it. Like, that's business, and it sucks, but that's America, right? Like, get it in writing, or you didn't exist <laughs> at the end of the day. Like, if, if you don't have it in writing, you're, you've are you got nothing. And if you have it in writing, it's collusion, and you're going to get in trouble in the NBA. Um, so, I mean, I get why Harden is, is upset. I don't think he's going about it in the right way. And who, like... Uh, it's tough, Scott, because I've been a James Harden fan. You know, like I don't think the situation in, in Oklahoma City was that bad, but he was never going to become the player he was coming off the bench. I, I think giving him the chance to flourish in Houston is what allowed him to become James Harden. I would have asked out of that Brooklyn situation too. I think Kyrie Irving's a fucking nut job. And as Kevin Durant has, has gone throughout his career, he's – Gone from a guy who I thought was pretty cool when he was meeting up with kids at at Oklahoma State to play flag football to now I think he's a douchebag. I I, I have nothing like I don't think if you saw Kevin Durant in public with your ten year old kid and the kid went up to him and said, "Hey, Kevin Durant, you're my favorite player." I think he would tell the kid to fuck off and leave him alone. Like I literally get that vibe from Kevin Durant. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am, but that's the vibe I get. So if you don't want to play with him anymore, okay, I get it. But now you're back with your GM in this, in Philly. You've gotten him to bring in all the players you like. You got PJ Tucker. You got Daniel House. You got a center. I don't know, Scott. Like it's 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 a weird situation. There's a it's it's a lose lose for everybody because Harden completely changed his game to play in Philly. He became a pass first point guard, led the league in assists, um, and played an All Pro level. So it's not like his game has suffered. He just became a little bit different player because that's what that team needed. Um, but yeah, it's he doesn't come off looking good. It's going to cost him a hundred grand uh, for those comments that he made as well. Um, so it's definitely when he was mad, he didn't get a certain amount of money. Now he's going to be real mad because he lost some more. I think the whole thing is for me is that if I were in his shoes, I'd be a little bit more mag- magnanimous in that recognizing what Daryl Moore has done for him over the years. Um, and I think that's. But also I, too, though, Scott, we, I think you have to realize 
what 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 Harden has done for Morey. Yeah, because without true. without without getting Harden, Morey was a guy who was this constant tinkerer. We never went below five hundred. Refused to to bottom out to get to the top. And he was always making moves on the margin, move on the margin, move on the margin. He turned Kyle Lowry into Dragic, turned Dragic into uh, Kevin fucking Martin. You know, like he was constantly trying to go get us that big name player. And then he's, you know, without Harden, we're looking at a season of Jeremy Lin, Ter- uh, of, of Lamb, and um, Chandler Parsons as our big three, right? Like that, and Kevin Martin. That's what we we're preparing to go into. So without Harden coming over here, is Daryl Morey considered this genius GM or is he out of the fucking league because he could never build a winner? Yeah, I mean, I, that's the point. But I think when you look at Daryl Morey, um, Daryl Morey has always had Harden's back. And so I think that's part of where it's at is that I think Morey understands what Harden has done for Morey. I don't think Harden is appreciating what Morey has done for Harden. And I think that's where, and, and I understand, you know, money situations. I understand, you know, being upset that, you know, he felt like something was promised to him. I just think he can handle his situation better just because he needs to understand what his position is in the game right now. And his reputation in the game is he's not a winner. I don't think it's particularly a fair reputation. Because I think when you look at his playoff numbers, his playoff numbers overall pretty close to his regular season numbers. I, th- I think he's you know pretty much the same player, but I think people you know are, are you know cherry picking a few games here and there, like the last game against San Antonio where he completely disappeared, and they're choosing to hone in on that. Like if you look at this last series that they played, he had a couple of bad games towards the end. But he also had like a 50-point effort early in the series that got them a win. So, I mean, to defend Harden, you would have to sit there and say, you cannot look at one without looking at the other. But at the same time, I think the narrative is the narrative. He needs to know the narrative. And he needs to appreciate that whenever he's looking to get out into his fifth organization. I think he does know the narrative. I, I really do, and I think he's. I think he's trying to get a ring. Really do. At this point, the only thing that would shut people up is if he if he if he had a ring. And I think, I think ring chasing has just become such a part of the NBA today. And and when you look at the narrative, it's it's always about how many rings do you have. When you when you look at somebody's career in today's NBA, especially if you end your career without a ring, it's almost like that's your fault. Because you never chose to go be on one of those super teams and go get yourself a ring. Especially as a top star in the NBA where you can demand trades and, and whatever it is. Where we used to look back, you know, a guy like Barkley, there was a respect for him. You know, he never got his ring, but he went toe-to-toe with Jordan. He was loyal. He played for not many teams. You know, it was it was just a different way of going about things. But again, in, in today's NBA, I just feel like if you are a guy who didn't get his ring, it was your fault because you that at least that's how it's viewed because you never went and put yourself on the right team to go get one. So I do think maybe Harden's even maybe paying a little bit too close attention to the narrative uh, instead of just worrying about playing his career. But I think that's all these guys nowadays. Everything is so um, public and you can reach these guys on Twitter and they see, I mean, we've seen Kevin Durant have a fake Twitter account. It's like talk shit back to people because he can't stand having a negative narrative out there. 
Um, and so it's, it is what it is, but I'm with you. I don't think he came off in a good light, but I do think there's more to the story. Uh, and I think because of some of his previous antics, he's, he's being made to look pretty bad right now. All right, Tim. All right, Tim. So you've, uh, you've obviously had somebody stick in your craw this week. So who do you got in your crosshairs? Actually, I had an incident today, Scott, that I sent you a little bit of a, a snippet of, of, of it. Um, so I guess a month or a month and a half ago, um, Prager U worked their way into the Florida, Florida school systems. And they are basically helping to design the curriculum of the Florida public schools. And again, for those of you who don't know what PragerU is, it is a, a far-right content creation meant to indoctrinate children into believing a very, very whitewashed version of history. They are the, you know, this is the one that's going around the internet is, is that they have a video that talks about how slavery actually taught African-Americans life skills so that way they could, you know, be successful when they were freed. That's this organization. The state of Texas and this Texas State School Board is now working with them to plan curriculum for the state of Texas. My, my representative's all for it. How do I know? Put it on Twitter. So when I call their office to voice my complaint, after you know a little bit of the conversation, I'm basically told, well, this is what the left gets for trying to push CRT into schools, this is how we fight back. First of all, the left didn't push CRT. CRT is a fucking made-up boogeyman that has been proved over and over and over again. The only people who don't realize that CRT is made up are the dumb fucks who made it up. And they continue to use it as a way to quote-unquote fight back against indoctrination. And then they say it's okay to have disagreements. It's okay to disagree about things. And that's that's true. It is okay to disagree about the details. You can't disagree about the fucking facts. Things happened in this country. A lot of people got really rich off trading and selling human beings. That happened. The state of Texas exists because they didn't want to give up their slaves. That fucking happened. I can't wait to see how Prager University describes the Texas Revolution. What excuse are they going to use for why Texas decided they want to separate from Mexico? They missed being American? They didn't want to learn Spanish? What, was, what, what are they going to come up with? Because the reason was Santa Ana said no more slaves. And they said, fuck you, and went to war. But what are we going to learn instead? Because it's... It wasn't even taught the way it should have been taught when I was in school, and it's only gotten fucking worse now. And then I happen to mention, when you do this shit, it makes it hard for teachers. My wife, again, is a math teacher. And I I don't know how it came to this, but I said, you know, she's already worried because you've got a a guy who's anti-CRT on her school board, and now you are going to pass stuff like this? And she goes, she's a math teacher. Why is she talking about anything but numbers with kids? Like, have you ever been in a school? Kids come to teachers that they trust. And then the lady tells me, uh, well, then she should be sending them to a certified counselor. Like, that's not how school works, man. When kids have faith in a teacher, they're going to go talk to that teacher. 
And as a parent of two children, I want my kids to, to have a relationship with, with certain teachers in life that they feel comfortable going to talk to because that's good. That means they're good teachers and they care and they're investing in their students. If you're there just talking math and a kid comes up to you and talk to you and says, mm, why don't you go see Miss Davis about that? She's the counselor. I don't deal with that. That's not a that's not a teacher who gives a fuck. You're looking at my wife who school ends at four o'clock and she's leaving at five thirty every day because she's doing carpool. She's helping kids. She's planning lessons. She's doing everything she can to make these kids' lives as good as possible. And this dumb fuck who works for Jared Patterson's office tells me that all she should be worrying about is numbers. Okay, so man, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, number one. I'm going to focus in on something you said. How did you find out that the reason why we fought the Texas Revolution was because Santa Ana said no more slaves? Uh, educating myself as an adult, uh, you know, through podcasts and and literature that is not exposed to you at Clear Lake High School so or you didn't Clear Lake get, Intermediate. You didn't get that in Texas history, huh? Interesting. No, it, interesting honestly, they don't works. even give you a reason. Like, they literally are just like, one day we're happy as Mexican citizens, and then the next day it's like, fuck this, we're out. You know, I made this point, um, and, and, and going behind the scenes, for those of y'all who have been dedicated listeners, you probably noticed that Tim and I have discussed far less politics the last you know, few weeks, and, and that is actually by design. Um, I have never put a political yard sign in my yard. I've never put a political bumper sticker on my car. I've never worn um, politician swag. And that is by design because uh, I'm a public school teacher. I don't live in the district I teach in, but you know, you run into, you, you run into kids all the time, you know, around town and I don't necessarily want them to know what my politics are because they don't necessarily need to know what my politics are. Um, Janet works at NASA, which is quite literally a military base. So really shouldn't be having political stuff, you know, on her cars, you know, on her car. So bring this up in that Tim mentioned how CRT is made up, which is absolutely correct. And this is what makes me angry about all this is that we make up all this stuff. So, you know, we have people that believe there are litter boxes in bathrooms and schools because, you know, kids want to identify as cats or whatever. I, I don't know. You know, Honestly, I'd be okay with that. If you, it, it's like my kindergarten is like, I'm a cat. Be like, okay, here's a fucking litter box. Well, the whole thing is, do you, do you, did you ever hear the story about why the one teacher brought in litter? Wasn't it like for the emergency preparedness box yeah, in so case there was like an earthquake or something? No, it, in case like there was a shooter, an active shooter. Yeah, it was, but it was the yeah, emergency preparedness exactly. bucket. So critical race theory is not being taught in schools. I'm in school. If you want to know what we're teaching, ask us. I'll tell you what we're teaching. If you are a elementary or a junior high teacher in our district, the teachers are going to email or send home 
basically a rundown of what they're going to go over that week. And they're going to sit there and say, hey, we're going to have a spelling test on Tuesday. And we're going to have a reading test on Thursday. So this is how your kids grades. This is what we're reading. They're, I mean, if you want to know, ask your teacher. That, this is what drives me nuts. And so instead, what we're going to do is we're going to make this stuff up. Because we don't want kids to know that racism existed because I guess we don't want them to know that racism exists. And the best line I've ever heard as far as that's concerned are the people who, you know, a friend of mine who actually got me into writing a blog, political blog in the first place. Uh, I met up with her at our high school reunion. Um, and she just said, you know, she put on Facebook years ago um, after George Floyd that she's worried about her son because she'd had to pull her son aside. So her son's the same age as our daughter and warn him about what happens if you get pulled over by a cop. And you had a bunch of my, you know, so-called, you know, people I graduated with who were like, Oh, it's not that bad. And, And so, you know, she said, and this, and I've heard this a lot, if my kids are old enough to experience racism, then your kids are old enough to learn about it. And that's the honest to God truth. And that's, that's about as, and the me to sit there and say that racism exists or racism existed isn't to sit there and say, if any teacher is doing this, I, I've never seen it, that you're a horrible person because your great grandparents were racist. Nobody's doing that. Nobody's sitting there saying you're racist because your great grandparents is saying this existed. And any of us that have, you know, older relatives, we know, we know what their attitudes were. We know, we know what, what they thought. We know what they said. And I don't think I have any of my any of my older relatives. None of them are hateful people, but I can't deny the things they said. And you know, they probably had the prevailing attitude at the time, which was, you know, they need to you know respect their place. I mean, my mother's old enough to have gone to segregated schools because she lived in small town Texas. And so, I mean, she lived in a, t- in a town that had 5,000 people in it, and they still managed to find a way to have a white school and a black school. And I can guarantee you the black school was not nearly as nice as the white school. This is my mother we're talking about here, still alive and kicking, folks. So if we're that my, close... My dad dealt with busing. Like, my dad's yeah. neighborhood was ones that, like, well, Joe but, Biden and that... My, group of people bust. Janet did. So um, when Janet lived in Baton Rouge, um, she went to two high schools. So she went to a boarding school for her junior and senior year, which was like, like a highly exclusive. I've been to their high school reunions. I tried to pull that quote of, hey, I was in your chemistry class. You don't remember me? It didn't work because there was like only 100 graduates. I mean, this is like the best of the best. But in her freshman, sophomore year, she got bussed into an inner city school because the inner city school was the one that had, uh, was the magnet school uh, for the honors program. That's how they, that's how they got it done. That's our lifetime. 
That's our lifetime. Well, that's what they did in Clear Creek ISD, too, with um, what's the intermediate school that was in the quote-unquote rough part of over in Webster. Oh, uh, yeah, well, that's where they have, yeah, it's WAVE. It's the WAVE program, so they have a... Uh, it was Magnet when I was there. It wasn't WAVE, was it? Well, so when you, okay, going back, I have to, so we have Clearview High School. I don't know if they had Clearview when you were there. Um, no. I mean, yeah, but that was where you went if you fucked up. Clearview has now turned into a vocational kind of school. So it's actually kind gotcha. of cool. It's kind of cool. They rebuilt it. That's where Webster Intermediate was. Webster okay. Intermediate turned into Westbrook, which is over by Baybrook Mall. And that's where Wave the Wave program is. And she got bust. She was in uh she was at Brookside. I mean, we live in North Fork. We're about as far away from Brookside as you can possibly be, but it was either Brookside or Seabrook. So we're pretty far from either one. And that was for the science magnet program. So busing is not a new thing. It, 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 it still exists. And they pick, you know, these locations strategically. So why don't we teach what actually happened? That's all I'm saying. You know, I've never told a kid, at least while they were in school, what my politics are. I mean, Tim will tell you, I didn't tell y'all what my politics were when we were at St. Bernadette's, because that really wasn't my place. (coughs) Our youth minister put me in charge of retreats. I could have grabbed that microphone. I could have gone on a 20-minute political rant if I had wanted to. Did I do that? No. With all due respect, Nancy would have tackled your ass in like two minutes. You would have yeah. gotten like two minutes into that about how like Jesus was actually a show solicit and Nancy would have curb stomped you. Uh, yeah, you're probably, if probably, if she were there, like sometimes she wasn't even there whenever I was she running was, a retreat. She was sucking the fun out of all of my retreats. Um, she wasn't necessarily there for all the, especially the retreats that were housed at St. Bernadette's. Like she mm. was oftentimes, she wasn't there. My favorite uh, was when Father JJ came to do mass at retreats yeah. and he got us out in like 35 minutes. Like he was not fucking around. He would curse in the homily. He would say like, God damn it. And stuff like that. And like, I, you're literally like, is that Father JJ? Like what? And then I, like 35 minutes later, we're out the door. I, so I've had one teacher that I've worked with and folks, I, I work with probably four or five teachers a year. I've had one teacher, one, tell the students what his politics was. He was the government teacher, and he was a huge Ted Cruz fan. He was conservative. One teacher. So to tell you all what's going on in schools, am I going to sit there and say nobody out there is politicizing this stuff? No, I can't guarantee that. That would be stupid. What I can say is that nine out of 10 teachers at least never go over what their politics are with students. We teach the curriculum. Uh, We lend them a sympathetic ear. Tim is absolutely right. You know, if a student comes up to me and, you know, wants to talk about stuff, I'm not going to sit there and say, no, you need to go to the counselor, dude. I'm not doing that. You know, I build up relationships with these students so that they can feel comfortable doing that stuff. And that's the whole point. That's what Tim's wife's do it too. And that that's what teachers do. 
And I guarantee you, uh, you know, I don't, you know, Tim's wife's not sitting there saying, I'm a liberal Democrat, by the way, just so you know. I mean, she's not doing that. You know, she's also not. Either, she may not right? be. A, like, she may not be a liberal Democrat. She's not going in there and saying I'm a Trumper. I mean, she's not doing that either. Right. No, like my wife is not one to have a political conversation. Period. Like she doesn't even like having them with me. Um, I think mostly because I like having them way more than she does. But she's not a political person. Like she will talk about issues that affect the students, right? Like when, when there's something politically in schools that is frustrating to me, to me, it's the political side of things. With her, it's this is frustrating because it's going to affect the students this way. Her concern is always the kids. And that's where this stuff is frustrating is, you know, like one of um, her friends is an eighth grade teacher, which is, you know, United States history. And they're going over uh, the curriculum for this year, talk about the colonies, all this other stuff. And their content coordinator just visited Jamestown and, and wanted to talk about slavery. And all the teachers are like, nope, we're not doing that. We're not touching that with a 10-foot fucking pole. And you're not wrong. We're just not touching that because this guy on the school board is looking for any reason he can to come after people. And that's sad because kids need to understand that, like, literally the reason some of these colonies existed was because they were port cities and they traded slaves there and if we can't understand why a colony existed in the first place do we really even understand the history of this country you know and and we're getting off on a tangent but you know we worship the founding fathers like their deities and they can do no wrong we have bastardized the history of this country and, and turned it into what is essentially greek mythology um and, and that's where we're at. And that's what PragerU, long story short, is trying to continue to do is, is you know, the right is so worried about indoctrinating kids. That's what these guys are doing. They are indoctrinating kids. They're putting propaganda for kids out on the Internet. And now they're trying to design the curriculum for my kids. And and now it's, it's at a point, you know, I can control my daughter's Internet access. I can control, for the most part, what stuff she's interacting with. I made it very clear to her as this year's Texas history, fourth grade. If you have any questions, you come ask me. But I can't, I can't do anything about the school's curriculum being designed by f- fucking PragerU. Well, and what kills me about that is that we're going to use stuff that's not happening in order to introduce the stuff that we want to introduce that would never fly. That's been the rights play for years. Yeah, they had they had welfare Sally or whatever you know whatever it was the lady who was cheating the welfare system so that way they can cut down on benefits. They had people who were quote unquote cheating the unemployment system so that way they can shut down unemployment. Meanwhile, people got shit tons of PPE loans um, forgiven. It's it's what the play has been for years. It's just it's a frustrating play. It's disgusting, and you know we are we're really hurting our kids. At the end of the day, Scott, we're hurting our kids, and and that's what makes them the scumbag to me. You're absolutely uh, – I endorse that scumbag 100%. I'm not endorsing PragerU, mind you. I'm endorsing Tim's call on PragerU there. Uh, so I think we're winding this thing down for another week. So where can the people find you, Tim? They can find me on Twitter, Tim underscore Costello10. They can find the Snaphook page on Facebook, search the Snaphook podcast. Picked up a new follower, a new listener this week. You'll see us, me especially, I'm in a lot of the Texans and Astros groups. So if you see me in there, um, 
I'm I'm often having discussions with people trying to correct some opinions of things. So um, love to pick up new fans that way. Love to talk sports. Love to talk Houston sports specifically. Um, and looking forward to another great week. Astros pull out a good win tonight, taking the first two games of the series. Rangers are losing right now. So hopefully when you wake up on Wednesday morning, Astros are a half game back at first place. Yeah, and there will be the Mariners probably one half game right behind us. So, you know, that's just the way. Wouldn't it be happen. crazy? Wouldn't it be crazy if, if the Rangers end up missing the playoffs altogether and it's Astros Mariners all the way? Yeah, it would be. Um, It'd be a mwah, chef kiss of delight up here, the DFW Metroplex for me personally. Going into work right now, Scott, is everyone's Rangers fans. And like this, my new job is very lax on dress code and people wear hats and they all wear the Rangers or Frisco Rough Riders stuff. It's like, when do I bust out the Astros hat to the, to my next day at the office? Do I do it? Do, do I wear the 2022 World Series champions version of the Astros? I don't know which one I go with. Maybe 2017 to rub it in their face. Uh, maybe go 45s and maybe they won't even know which it, they don't know their history. So they won't even know what team that is. Maybe. Uh, well, so uh, yeah, you can find me on the X at sbarzilla.com. Uh, We're still trying to figure out whether or not the, uh, the the messages that you send are they still tweets? Are they X's? We don't know. Um, I am at there on uh, Instagram and on the threads as well at sbarzilla. I'm writing for <laughs> Battle Red Blog, writing for Juanita Jeans, and I have my own Substack. Uh, it's uh, thoughts from a, a native Texan is what it's called. So you could take a, a search for that right now. Um, kind of, um, we'll have the we'll have the link to Scott's Substack as well as his other stuff in our show notes as well. So you can find it through there. Yeah, I, I'm I'm up to about ten or eleven followers. So you know we're 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 getting there. We're getting uh, increasing. But uh, another good week. We hope that everybody has a great rest of their week as they listen to us on a Wednesday morning. Uh, please interact with us on the show page on Facebook, you know, let us know what you think. Uh, and, and trust us that we are chasing down as many entertaining guests as we could possibly get, you know, for this show. I did get a text while we were doing this show, Scott, from our former Astro that we're trying to track down. He's in for next week. So hopefully fingers crossed, we will have a former Houston Astro on the show next week. That sounds like a plan. That's all we've got for you here this week. Uh, as always, it's been an absolute blast bringing, bringing the Houston sports to you, talk a little golf, talk a little baseball, uh, and some Houston Texans football. But we appreciate everybody who took the time to join us this week and make us a part of your week on the Snap Hook. Thank you for tuning in to the Snap Hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. I wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and his outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snap Hook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snap Hook.